Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. Welcome everyone. I am sure many of you surgeon listeners are still reflecting back on our recent Sage's meeting in Denver last month in March. Well, that was a great one as are all Sage's meetings, but frankly, Kevin, you probably thought I would freeze to death, huh? You, you were, you were going to freeze uh, in there, Denver. <laughs> but you saw I was all bundled up. I was nice and warm. I was the only bundled up person at the meeting. Could you even see my eyes? I couldn't. <laughs> I could not see you. Yeah, I had a shopping trip for a trip to Iceland. So I thought Iceland, Denver, you know, similar to me. They're both very cold. All right. Well, we are now moving on to episode eight of Sage's Stories. We're so excited to be dropping that where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders I am your co-host, Dr. Sharin Tofai, tuning in from Los Angeles, California. And I'm Dr. Kevin L. High, comfortably back home in Cleveland, Ohio. Today's guest is another living legend of sages, Rick Green. Dr. Green is currently the medical director of the Cancer Data Registry at the Levine Cancer Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina. He received his medical school training at the University of Virginia, where he elected to membership he was elected to membership into AOA, which stands for Alpha Omega Alpha, and that's the National Honor Society for Medical Schools. He completed a residency in surgery at Yale University School of Medicine. He was on active duty with the, with the United States Navy and was surgeon on the USS Nimitz. Dr. Green is a surgeon with a clinical focus on surgical oncology and has been involved in organizational work pertaining to a cancer for a number of years. He was a founding member of SAGES, which is one of the many reasons I am super excited to have him on as a guest, and was even president from 1992 to 1993. Among his many talents, and we're just gonna touch on a few, he's been involved in many forms of media for various surgical societies. And as soon as you hear him speak, you'll know why. Uh, he was the host of The Recovery Room, which was an audio conversation sponsored by the American College of Surgeons from 2010 to 2016. In that show, he hosted experts in surgery, medicine, ethics, public health, and they discussed many of the latest developments in medicine and healthcare. Now he is the podcast for Speaking of Surgeonk, which is sponsored by the Annals of Surgical Oncology and the Society of Surgical Oncology, where he discusses all things, wait, hernia related? No, uh, no, that, uh, that's no. not right. This that podcast <laughs> is all about surgical oncology. I'm sorry, we were just in this pattern of having uh, only inviting hernia surgeons onto the show. You only wish, Kevin, all yeah, day yeah. hernias. <laughs> <laughs> so Rick is, of course, uh, uh, the senior medical advisor and editor of General Surgery News, which is the number one most widely read literature among surgeons nationwide. So not only do we have to look up to him on a clinical level, he is also a huge influence on us as we try to replicate the success he had as podcast host. I have had the opportunity to hear Rick on numerous occasions, both on the interviewing and interviewee end. 
we have some big shoes to fill, Sharon, uh, to get to where Dr. Green is. So welcome to Sage's yes. Stories, Rick. Sharon and Kevin, it's, uh, it's just an absolute pleasure to be with you. So I thank you for having me. I'm a little bit uh, in awe because uh, our audience can't see, but I'm in my office with like a relatively kind of low tech microphone and Rick has the full studio look. The stuff you see on TV, that's Rick right now. The headphones, the huge microphone hanging from a post, just like the sound room. So this is amazing. We could only like hope to be that one day, Rick. Yeah, well, you and- guys, you guys sound very, very good. So let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's pretty impressive. So, uh, you know, again, uh, the intimidation factor is, is up there. <laughs> for sure. Well, um, thank you for your time. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I bumped into you at the last Sages meeting and you were so gracious to agree to come and be one of our early guests. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of uh, really excited because uh, I've, I've been following you through Sages since I was a resident, second year resident, and you've been a staple of every surgery meeting, every Sages meeting. Um, and now you're like this amazing podcaster. <laughs> so be gentle on us. We'll do our best, um, but carry on. So the breadth of topics you've uh, covered in uh, your years in surgery in various media formats is huge, but for Sage's stories, we try to really hone in on the subject, which in this case is you. Uh, it's clear you've had an amazing uh, career, but it would be great for us to kind of hear, uh, you know, just about how your life progressed. Uh, so just tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? What was your surgical training like? And, and maybe some highlights of your your surgical journey along the way. Well, thank you again. Uh, you know, I, um, I'm from Virginia. I grew up in a little town, uh, south of Richmond, Virginia, and, uh, went to public school and was lucky enough to have a wonderful university in, in my state, the university of Virginia. Um, and I actually, um, when I was growing up, um, I had my first radio show when I was 14 years old, wow. uh, in my uh, in the city that was adjacent to Colonial Heights, which was a little bigger, was called Petersburg. I had a just a show. It was uh, about my school, and I would highlight things that went on in the school. So that was uh, that was beginning of my career, my broadcasting career. And uh, you know, I've enjoyed it. Uh, and all through college, I I had shows on uh, the radio station at the University of Virginia, both in college and medical school, and. Um, as and then went north for my surgical training. Um, I think I decided I wanted to be a surgeon uh, in around my third year medical school. I, I really wanted to be a pediatrician at first, uh, but then oh. sort of gravitated to uh, to surgery, and um, and really loved it. Um, I actually went to Yale to become a cardiac surgeon, um, and uh, I had a wonderful mentor who interviewed me for that program and. Uh, when I matched there, I was delighted. But, you know, as things happen, um, I, uh, you, you two don't remember this, but in the waning years of Vietnam conflict, and again, we're talking in, in the early 70s, a medical student had to decide what branch of the service he or she wanted to go into. And then you were allowed to either have your first two years of surgical training uh, without being called up, 
or they would decide to allow you to have your entire year, your entire five years or six years or seven years, oh. whatever it was. And for me, it was going to be seven or eight years. Hmm. So um, they uh, finally notified me in the uh, middle of my second year, uh, my PGY2 year, that uh, I had to go in on active duty in the US Navy uh, after my second year. So, you know, in those years, we had a pyramid program. We had 16 interns starting at Yale and only four would graduate. Oh, wow. All of us were vying for the same four positions. So I walked into my chairman's office when I got this letter from the Navy and said, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but I got to go in the military and I'm going to have to give up my position. And um, he said, well, uh, you know, I, I understand. Um, so uh, my plan was to go in the Navy. So about three months later, as luck would have it, uh, I got a, uh, a midnight missive, uh, as my wife would say, from the Navy saying that really um, they had made a mistake and I could stay for my entire surgical training at, at Interesting. Yale and then go into the military after that. Well, that was wonderful, but, it, but I had already given up my position and had already been filled. So I walked into my chairman's office who happened to be sort of a GI colorectal uh, person. Uh, and I said, you know, uh, what, what can I do? I don't have a job. The Navy doesn't want me. He said, well, I know you're thinking of cardiac surgery, but I have a fellowship uh, that we have from the American Cancer Society. So we're happy to give to you for a year. Now, uh, if you want to accept this, you'll have to go to London and, and, and work in London for six months uh, at the um, St. Mark's Hospital, which is the National Colon and Rectal Hospital uh, in the UK. So I said, you know, it doesn't sound bad. My, my wife's family was from, from London. And so we went over. Well, I tell you, that was a magnificent experience. I learned how to do colonoscopy. Now, remember, this was 1972. Right. Uh, and um, the colonoscope was just coming out. So I, I work with a fellow named John Leonard Jones and Christopher Williams uh, at St. Mark's. And they taught me how to do colonoscopy. Uh, I worked with a wonderful pathologist. Uh, and I got really involved in, in colon cancer and polyps and all sorts of stuff. And so I went back. And I just decided that cardiac surgery was not for me. I wanted to spend my career not only in oncology, but also in some facet of, of, of GI. And actually, uh, in 1972 and 73, as a third year resident uh, working in the lab, remember, this was my PGY three year, I was the only one at Yale who knew how to do colonoscopy. And I was called upon to do the colonoscopies. Including people. the we, faculty, I'm, I'm there was presuming. no faculty. There were no yeah. faculty. No GI people had had trained in colonoscopy at that point. So that was an interesting experience. And of course, as time wore on, I got more involved in, in oncology, uh, and uh, stayed. Um, of course, was able to get my oncology training there as well. And then went into the Navy and was assigned on the USS Nimitz, which at that point was the uh, prototype of a nuclear aircraft carrier. So I was the only oh. surgeon for 6,000 men on that ship. It was a wonderful experience. And you know, I could talk for hours about the different things that uh, occurred on that ship, but I operated a lot. Um, actually, there's a movie that you probably should, should look at. It's called The Final Countdown, if you've never seen it. 
It's on Netflix. Uh, it's, a, it's about a, a nuclear aircraft carrier that happens to be in the Pacific, and they get into a terrible storm and go through a time warp. And the time warp takes them back to December 6, 1941. And so you can imagine, they know what's going to happen the next day. Well, the point I'm making is, I had the speaking role in that movie of the ship's physician. Really? Now, in that <laughs> oh, movie, in that cool. movie, in that All right, movie, we'll watch it. Now we'll, we'll watch it just well, for well, that. Well, hang on for a minute. In that movie was Kirk Douglas, Martin Sheen, um, James Farentino, and several others who you may, you may or may not know. But the point is, right. as you know, many movies, they're slated to start at a specific time, but unfortunately get backed uh, into the future. And what happened is they delayed starting that movie. They filmed it on the Nimitz, but I was already had my next assignment to the Portsmouth Naval Hospital in Portsmouth, Virginia. So unfortunately, I had to give up my position as the, um, as the speaking role for the ship's doctor. Oh, and, no. uh, so you won't see me in the movie, but oh, no. you ought to look at the movie because okay. it will show you exactly what's on a nuclear carrier because it was made on the, on the Nimitz. Wow. So uh, again, that okay. was my, my Navy experience. That's a great story. You know, I, I always tell my students that uh, don't, whatever you plan on doing, you'll be surprised how life will change things, you know, pediatrics for you and then cardiac surgery and surgical oncology, uh, being on a movie. <laughs> uh, that's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Did, did you have any idea that you would have these like changes in decisions for your career or, or kind of uh, interesting experiences or they all kind of fell into your lap and you rolled with it? Well, I think they sort of fall into your lap. I think many of the things in, in my life, I've been either in the right place at the right time. But, you know, there's a Yiddish term, it's called beshert. And things are beshert, they're meant to be. And so, you yeah. know, I wasn't meant to be a cardiac surgeon. Now, I will tell you that what I wanted to do after I finished my, my general surgery training, I wanted to go into pediatric surgery. But my wife thought I'd been in school for long enough. <laughs> and she said, you probably don't want to do that. You might want to, you know, get start your career. Yeah, yeah. Get, a real, get a real job. Yeah. But I, I love pediatric surgery and I, uh, I, I, I still do. But, uh, you know, things, things happen for a reason. And so after I finished the Navy, I wanted to go into academics. But I wrote letters to every possible medical school you can think of and, you know, saying that, you know, I felt I was fairly well trained. I had a real interest in working with residents. I got one interview uh, and I won't tell you where it was, but it was a new medical school that was just opening and it was in a place. And my wife said, you know, you really should go look at it. But if you take the job, I will not be going with you. Oh my lord! And so, um, you know, lonely I, I, job. I, I thought that was a signal, uh, and I decided that. Well, I decided to go into practice, and I went into practice in a small town in Maryland. And this is another thing uh, that just fell in because the man who ran this practice, uh, it was in Habity Grace, Maryland. Uh, you know, 30, 40 miles above Baltimore, he was a man I had met at summer camp. He was the the camp surgeon at summer camp that I went to for years in Maryland. 
And, uh, you know, I knew him. And so I contacted him. We kept in contact over the years. And he said, please, you know, why don't you come into practice with me? So I did. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a small community hospital. Um, I did the vascular surgery. I did general surgery. I did all sorts of things. And I did endoscopy. And, uh, you know, I, I he even bought a colonoscope for me. But I, I, I found out what the politics of medicine was like uh, in a community and, and not even a small community, a large community, because when I started scheduling patients to do colonoscopy in a little uh, office setting that he had on our second floor, uh, the GI people came to him and said, if I do the colonoscopy, they will never get another referral uh, oh. to our practice. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm laying the groundwork, you see, for my involvement in, in getting involved in SAGES in the beginning, because that was, a, that was really sort of a lesson to me. And, uh, you know, because surgeons weren't doing endoscopy. And remember, we weren't doing laparoscopy or anything else. Although I will tell you, I did some laparoscopy as a resident. Uh, uh, but basically that we were just getting involved in flexible endoscopy. And so this was 1978 when I went to the list, this little practice. But uh, I, I stayed there for two years because I really, I really wanted to get back to teaching. I wanted to get back to working with residents. I wanted to get back to being involved in research and some of the things that I was doing. And so one day I was reading the New England Journal of Medicine, which I, by the way, started reading when I was a medical student. And, you know, they had an area in the back where they had job offerings. And right. so uh, one of those jobs was from a, a new medical school in South Carolina that was opening. And they were looking to have a chief of surgery at the VA hospital. And the, and the whole medical school was, was built around the VA. That was one of the major hospitals for this yeah. new medical school. Great. So anyway, yeah. So I, I applied four months, never heard a thing. So I'm sitting in my office one day and I get a call from my assistant says, uh, so-and-so is on the phone. And this was the chairman of surgery who said, why don't you come on down, look at the position. And so I did. And, uh, you know, I was there for 17 years. Uh, we built a uh, surgical oncology division and I was chief of surgery at the VA for that time. So, you know, again, things happen for a reason. And that's how I got back to academics. Yeah, that's the whole uh, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, you got to be in the right place at the right time often and then take advantage of that opportunity. So that's a lot of interest in medicine early on. Did you come from a family of doctors or have any uh, experience with that? early in your childhood? Well, my, my father was in the retail jewelry business. Uh, the only okay. person that was in medicine was an uncle of mine. He lived in New Jersey. He was my mother's brother. And he had his office in the house. He was a general physician, general mm -hmm. practice. And as a small child, uh, I would go visit him. And it was the most miraculous thing. He had this beautiful paneled living room but you opened the secret door from his living room and you walked into his clinic. And I still remember the smells. And I, I was about five years old and I decided at that time, I wanted to be a doctor. At five years old. Right. Wow. And, I wanted, and I wanted to cure cancer. I would tell people, I want, I want to cure cancer. 
Kevin I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let my five-year-old yeah i'm gonna let my five-year-old <laughs> listen to this and we'll, we'll see what see what happens we're I, I I don't have a feeling that uh, he's got his mind made up that he wants wants to go into medicine at this point. So that's some clear insight uh, that you had at a very young age. Yeah, I might have gravitated to becoming a radio announcer, but I, I, I stick I stuck with the medicine. That's pretty amazing. So that's great. You had a role model in your uncle. Uh, and then along the way, who were the biggest influencers in, in your career? Great question. Uh, of course, you know, the people you train with are, are many of the people that you, uh, that you have as an influence. I, I think one of the people in medical school I met, I had the opportunity of uh, having uh, the opportunity to scrub with Denton Cooley uh, when he oh, came wow. to our medical school. Wow. And uh, I was a third year resident, a third year medical student. And I scrubbed with him in a number of cases. And he, he was just a magician. Uh, and uh, I think that's where I got my desire to go into cardiac surgery. And actually, I, I remained friends with, with Denton for many years because we both played the saxophone. Music was a big part of my life. Uh, I began playing the clarinet when I was about six years old, and I played all the woodwind instruments. And uh, in college, I started the pep band at the University of Virginia. Uh, I had a rock and roll band uh, in high school. I had a jazz oh. band in college. And I so, knew there was something special about you. I'm also, a, I'm also a saxophone player myself. Well, I, I haven't played in a while, but but yeah. So I knew there was something special about you. I, I was also a saxophone <laughs> player. Absolutely. But it all but, makes sense. It all makes sense now. Yeah, but but again, you know, the, the saxophone was, was one of the things that uh, got me interested in Denton and, and some of the things that he was doing. Not only was a brilliant surgeon, of course, but anyway, and, and, and in, in my residency, uh, there was a gentleman named Ira Goldenberg, who unfortunately uh, passed away many years ago, but he was developing a concept in 1970 when I started as a resident of, it's a strange concept of just taking out the lump of a cancer in the breast. And he was vilified. He was, people made jokes uh, because, you know, we, we did radical mastectomies. That's all we did, radical mastectomies, no matter how big the cancer was. And so, but he and, and a radiation oncologist kept working on this. And, and of course, you know, you know, the story, the rest of the story is, and when I started in practice, I started doing lumpectomies and radiation because I felt this was the way things would, would go in the future. And uh, so, um, you know, he, he was a big influence in my life. That's, I mean, that, that kind of, goes in line with this next question, which is that uh, you were clearly in a lot of your early years, uh, a pioneer to introduce laparoscopy to the field of surgical oncology. I, I know that that was a definitely a tense moment. And there was a lot of skepticism around minimally invasive surgery and oncology. And I actually remember a surgical oncologist uh, that I trained with, I told him I was going into MIS. And he said, Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to open up the center of MIS oncology. Only mine will be the center of maximally invasive surgical oncology. So what was it like in those early days trying to merge laparoscopy and, and surgical oncology? Well, you know, I, as, as you know, I, I was uh, around when, when Sages started, uh, I got a, a letter one day from Jerry Marks. He was thinking about putting a little group together because 
you know, he felt that surgeons should have an organization if they were interested in flexible endoscopy. And there were no other surgical organizations that wanted to take this on because of the concerns about the gastroenterologists yeah, and how they would and how they would react, right? So I got involved in SAGES uh, in uh, 1980, 1981, uh, we met and formed the organization. And of course I was involved in all the committees and everything. And finally in 1992, I became president. And that was a very interesting time because as you know, the first laparoscopic cholecystectomy was basically in 1989. And at that meeting in Louisville is where Jacques Parisat came and showed his video uh, at our exhibit booth, one of the exhibit booths. And, uh, you know, so the rest was history. So by the time I took over as president, really that was the revolution was ongoing. And I was involved really in so many different things with newspapers and everything else, because not only were people doing the operation, but we were seeing the complications of the operation. And that was a problem. Right. And even New York State, they wanted to have a moratorium on all laparoscopic cholecystectomies. They wanted to shut it down. Um, and so I, I, I was in a position to talk to all of these groups and, and talk to the National Institutes of Health and, and be involved in these conferences. And so it was really a, a, a very, very interesting time uh, to, to be not only doing it, because I, I learned early. I did my first one in 1990 in Columbia, South Carolina, where I was living. And then, uh, of course, uh, taking on this responsibility as chair of, of, of president of, of SAGES was, was, was a really interesting time. And how many of you were there in 1980? There were about 20 of us oh, wow. who, who met at the Peachtree Plaza Hotel in Atlanta. Um, and again, the reason I was asked, for a number of years, I was having flexible endoscopy courses. Uh, for surgeons. And I would have a course where 50 or 60 surgeons came and I would have a laboratory for them. We had lectures. I was inviting people, uh, specific friends of mine to give talks, but there was, it was only in flexible endoscopy, upper and lower. And so uh, Jerry uh, heard about this and he said, would I be interested in joining with a group that might want to do this? And I said, of course, you know, sign me up. And so we, we met and, um, and, and launched what was called SAGES. Uh, we looked at the logo, we talked about how to go about it. And of course, our first real SAGES meeting was not until 1987. It was in Williamsburg, Virginia. And so, uh, and uh, you know, then of course, sort of at Mushroom, but when, by the time that I took over in 1992, uh, that's when we really were in and we wanted to embrace laparoscopy. We didn't want to just be, and we, we actually changed our, our name, it became the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. That and was very important. It was debated a lot, but we added that and because we wanted to capture a lot of things. Yes, I remember that part. Kevin doesn't remember. He was still getting potty <laughs> trained in those years. <laughs> yeah, well, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, history is history is, is is wonderful, and of course, it's it's been obviously uh, such a wonderful thing to see what's happened to the organization, and you know, like the two of you and all of the young people who have come in over the years. I mean, it's been wonderful to, to watch this. So, when you started Sages, was it 
Were you all young and early in your careers or were there seasoned surgeons? I'm just curious at what stage in their career people decided to, I mean, start a brand new surgical society and focus on endoscopy. Yes. Well, I, I was 35 when, when I met with this group and there were obviously uh, a number of people older than, than I was, uh, because remember, uh, they wanted to have some seasoned people to make this uh, more realistic and have people who were already uh, recognized in the surgical world for some of the things that they were doing. But remember, there was such a limited number of surgeons who were doing flexible endoscopy at that time. And so there was not a, not a, a big group. But, um, you know, again, I, 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 was, I was delighted uh, being asked as, as a fairly young surgeon uh, to, to be involved in this effort. And with regard to that, do you feel that um, there is a change where gastroenterologists are okay having surgeons do colonoscopy endoscopy? I feel that uh, well, even when I was a resident, that was a big deal. Uh, there was this kind of territory uh, nationally where the GI doctors didn't like to see surgeons do it. I see more surgeons doing it for, for sure. Part of our residency program training of residents now where it wasn't before, thanks to SAGES and American Board of Surgery. But how much has that shifted? Is there still a territorial nature to endoscopy among surgeons versus non-surgeons? Well, I think there, there'll always be sort of a, a turf issue when you think about GI and, and surgeons doing endoscopy. I, I will tell you, though, that now um, surgeons can get into the endoscopy suites that used to be run totally by GI people. I mean, this was an issue in, in many hospitals. That's why one of the things we tried to do early was develop guidelines for endoscopy uh, that surgeons could, could do. How, how, how should you deal with your own medical staff? How do you deal with those issues in your own hospital? And then, of course, to do research, uh, do some of the pilot studies we, we did showing that surgeons could do endoscopy as well, if not better, than many gastroenterologists because we knew the anatomy, tended to know the anatomy better. We could certainly take care of the complications that developed from flexible endoscopy. And so, yeah, I, I think it's been a, a major shift, of course, and I'm, I'm happy to see it because then what happened, you started to have faculty involved in surgery programs who were doing endoscopy and were training residents. And of course, this is something that I never had. I, I had to go away and, and, as I said, learn it from somebody in another country. So, uh, you know, this, is, this was happening. Many young surgeons uh, went to other places to learn endoscopy because a gastroenterologist would not teach endoscopy. They would not right. get involved in a, research, in a residency program. Yeah. Uh, this was anathema. And so I, I think a lot of that has changed now for the good. Uh, in, in the midst of kind of this really, I would say, active period of, of uh, you know, endoscopy and laparoscopy and a lot of evolution in the field, you also continued to be involved with surgical media. And, and obviously we heard that that was a part of your you know, your, even your high school education, but, you know, how did you loop that in and, and what were some of those early, you know, media, um, you know, media 
opportunities that you took on and how did that develop over the years? Well, you know, I, again, even as a teenager, I, I was interested in, in communication and how people communicated. I, I got involved in, in an oratorical contest uh, that was sponsored by an organization and, and went pretty far with that on, on a national level. And again, it was just speaking, it was public speaking. Um, and I, I felt as my career went on and I got more involved in, in my residency and medical school, things like this, it's how we communicate with each other, how a physician communicates uh, certainly with a patient. And so, uh, I mean, luckily I, I uh, getting behind a microphone uh, never really um, unnerved me. And, um, you know, being uh, involved in radio and, and now the kinds of things we do, my, my wife has always said to me that I have a face that was made for radio. And so, um, <laughs> you know, um, so, so it was a natural. Nice. And, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, it, it became part of, of, of what I did. Like, for instance, uh, when we got involved in early on in laparoscopy, I was uh, luckily enough to, uh, I was involved with a small group that was invited to China in 1991 to introduce lap coli in China. They weren't doing it. There was no lap coli. We had to take our own instruments. And um, so all of the instrument makers and the companies went with us. And they finally decided, uh, for instance, Ethicon decided that they should build a facility where people could be trained. And they decided they would build that facility in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, in order to have the grand opening, they had a worldwide uh, television uh, conference. We didn't have Zooms at that time. And I was asked to be the MC of that worldwide program that opened the Ethicon facility in Cincinnati. And so, you know, it was things like that. It was fun things to do because I really enjoyed it. And uh, so, a lot of what I've done, uh, you know, is, is from organizations that I've been involved in. And now, um, as you might know, I'm, I'm doing a, a fair number of podcasting uh, for, for journals, uh, for organizations. I've just launched another podcast this week uh, that will highlight cancer registrars and cancer registries. Nice. They, they've never had a podcast before, so I've called it Cancer Registry World. And so, um, you know, that's going to be on Apple Podcasts and all of the different pod podcast uh, platforms that I use for my other podcasts. Well, again, this brings up the intimidation factors. I, I, I know that, um, have you had a chance to, to check out some of uh, the Sages? So we put a lot of effort into the Sages Stories uh, podcast. One, one of my closest friends uh, gave us a solid B minus. Uh, what, what's your take? Well, I've listened to all of the, uh, all of the sages stories. I, I think that I think they're marvelous. Uh, you know, I've learned a lot uh, from the people. And of course, I've worked with all these people. You know, I uh, George Bercy uh, has has been a, a friend and yeah. uh, and somebody I've I've been working with. Uh, uh, we've collaborated on a number of things, as, as you may know. I just helped him with his autobiography uh, yes. last year. We brought that yeah. out. That's great. We just, we've great. Just, collaborated on a book on on the history of laparoscopic uh, biliary surgery That's we saw the book no we stones book. unturned yeah I we saw love it book. no stones unturned that's right and so i mean I, I i i love what you're doing it's um 
you know, it's, it's not only what people have done uh, in their academic life, uh, but uh, who they are, uh, how they got to where they are in their, in their lives. And, uh, you know, I, I just find it fascinating. I think Kevin just needs a little bit extra, you know, pat on the back because <laughs> every week. That's my fishing uh, moment. Yeah. Kevin's fishing moment. I think Kevin, uh, we, at least I somewhat relate to your comment, um, Rick, about having the perfect radio face. That may be why I got chosen. <laughs> why Kevin oh, and I got chosen for this wow. podcast. <laughs> I, I doubt that. I, I disagree that. on that, I on all of us for that matter. Maybe. I disagree with your wife too, Rick. Yes. <laughs> I will tell her that. All right. Well, uh, yeah, the Bercy was definitely a great one because we got to do it at his home. And that was uh, really quite a treat. And he's such a gracious host as well. Um, and so he was a founder with you. Is that right? Well, and actually, he shortly afterwards. Yeah. You know, despite the fact that, that George is going to be 101, he was not one of the founders. Yeah, um, he said that. Uh, he clearly has, has done so much uh, from his development of technology. But interestingly enough, he, he was not in that that cadre. I mean, obviously, he got involved uh, because of his uh, his work, uh, you know, in in endoscopy, uh, and then of course in laparoscopy, and and then became more involved because Barbara uh, was there, and uh, you know Barbara Salzman Bercy, and uh, I remember I remember the first time I recognized that they were an item. Uh, we were in Berlin all together in Berlin in 1988 for the first World Congress in endoscopy. And we were, we were launching uh, the new journal, the journal Surgical Endoscopy. It was launched out of the papers at that meeting. And, you know, I mean, Barbara was there and George was there and Jerry Marks, and we were all hanging out together. And um, we, we knew something was going on between them. We couldn't quite figure it out. But uh, as, as, you know, the history showed, uh, that, that was a major, uh, a major, uh, get together. And so, uh, you know, again, George, obviously he, he actually followed me as president. So George was president in 1993, 94. And, uh, I had the pleasure of, uh, of welcoming him to the podium. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been, uh, wonderful to, uh, to, to listen to all of the people that you've been uh, talking about. That's great. We got some guest on guest dirt. I love it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I get other stories for you, but I don't, you know. Well, that's why you're here, Rick. Keep them rolling. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you know, one of, one of my really fun things that I've been doing, we developed this little group, the Lap Rappers. Um, yeah, and we, wow. we, we, yeah. we uh, launched in 1992-93. And you two, of course, I don't know you probably weren't. Well, well Archana, Archana really likes the Lap Rappers. She's, uh, she's a big fan. My favorite. Yeah, well, we, 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 uh, we were up against a group at that meeting in Washington called the Capitol Steps. Now, maybe you have heard of the Capitol Steps. And unfortunately, over the last couple of months, the Capitol Steps have decided to disband because of all of the political upheavals going on in the world. You, you, you can't sort of make fun of politicians anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, but they performed at the Sages meeting in 1992 in Washington, and we had our first, our first uh, program using the lap wrappers. So 
you know, I started doing the MC of the uh, sing-off. And so I've been doing that for 25 years. Uh, we've been having, as you know, the sing-off at Sages. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. And again, that's, that's part of sort of the, the communication stick that I, that I enjoy. Well, that's really uh, one of the major segments of our show, which is we have an actual We Are the Sages segment. Uh, I'm most excited about this. I think Archon is uh, most excited about it. I feel that among all the members of Sages, you are the most recognizable at the sing-off and at, therefore at Sages. You're so animated and very involved. And if only we had a PowerPoint presentation of all your costumes um, and all the lyrics, <laughs> that would have been fantastic. But um, in this We Are the Sages segment, perhaps you can share some of your fun, memorable moments and stories and um, any dirt you've got, we'll, we'll take any of it. Well, I mean, of course, one of the things is, is really a delight in how many venues we've had the sing-off uh, perform in. I mean, we, we've been, uh, you know, at uh, Universal Studios in, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, we've been at Disney World. Uh, we've been at... Uh, uh, so many different venues um, that uh, it's it's been delight delightful to uh, to really see the performance on that and of course you know when the when our Japanese colleagues uh, became involved uh, oh, yeah. it was uh, another whole uh, level of entertainment um, you know the only thing we had to make sure of is that we're, they weren't totally nude on the yes. stage <laughs> you know we 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 do have some decorum uh, at Sages. Uh, we are and, doctors. Yes. And so, but uh, it's, uh, they, they really, they really do it up nicely. And so then of course, we are the sages uh, uh, came to be and, uh, you know, it, it's, sages is such a unique organization. It, it really is a family. Uh, and people have brought their, um, their children. Uh, when I was president, I, uh, my presidential year was in Phoenix, Scottsdale. And um, it was sort of interesting. One of our members actually got married at the Sages meeting. The ceremony was at, uh, during the Sages meeting. That's a Sages story. Wow. And- um, What was that? I would like to give a big shout out. Well, it's, his name was Jonathan Sackier and he was married during the Sages meeting. Wow. Uh, and uh, they decided that they were gonna have sort of a, bachelor's party for him well the bachelor's Ooh. party it was decided without my knowledge was going to be in my suite at the <laughs> hotel uh, as you know the president has sort of a bigger hotel uh, room and they give you a suite um, we didn't know that but uh, thanks for sharing <laughs> well there were there were yeah, some interesting uh, cocktails. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, at the Sages meeting, you have a little something at night for the president and the president's suite. Well, they decided they were going to uh, invite several strippers to uh, this um, bachelor's uh -oh. party. Now, I don't know how much you want to hear about this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, keep so, going. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. So my wife and my children uh, were staying in the suite with me. 
And you can imagine um, when all of this took place, uh, I had a lot of explaining to do uh, because I didn't arrange any of this, but it was hard to convince my wife that I did not arrange this. Uh, so that was a, that was an interesting time. Of course, that was the meeting that I rode in on a bull. Uh, you might have seen pictures of that in some of the oh Sages uh, brochures. Yeah, I, they had a live bull. I rode into the restaurant where the, um, the VIP dinner was being uh, staged. And um, that, was, that was interesting in itself. And so, uh, yeah, a lot of interesting things have, have gone on at the Sages meeting. Uh, but, uh, I, I think those are, those are highlights for me. Okay. Well, <laughs> on that note, I want, I want to give you a little time to, to, to tell us about your family. It's not, your wife has popped in and out of a couple of these things. And I, I certainly want to give you, get, let you get some airtime to, to, to highlight them. And as you mentioned, it's sages is often includes families. And, and, uh, I think that makes up a big part of who we are. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the uh, I have uh, my wife is Donna, and uh, I have uh, two wonderful children, and now three grandchildren. Uh, and my uh, they never really followed me in medicine, although my my daughter is a psychotherapist, and I I think she's as close as probably uh, any of my children have been. But uh, my son's an attorney, and uh, um, they've been incredibly supportive. And you know, it's just like everybody says, you can't do what you do without having your family supportive. Uh, many times uh, I was away for extended times. I used to do a lot of European travel uh, in some of the things I was doing, especially when laparoscopic cholecystectomy first first hit. Uh, so you know, it's 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 just been a a, a joy and uh, to to do that. Uh, you know, anytime you're a surgeon, of course, takes your takes you're away from your spouse, you're away from your family. You, and then you take on these other responsibilities. Uh, but I, I wouldn't do it any differently. Uh, I have enjoyed everything that I, I've done. I look forward to a few other things, hopefully, in the future. But um, the, um, the, the family is, is so important. I, I got married the day before my internship started. Oh. My honeymoon was on Route 95 to New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, from Richmond, Virginia. Um, you can imagine what that was like. Very romantic. Yeah. And, uh, and then I was on every other night, um, you know, beginning uh, right after we got to New Haven. So, uh, you know, my wife was, was teaching. She's a teacher. And so I was, I was working. And uh, we finally got a honeymoon about uh, a year and a half later. Um, but, you know, that was, uh, and we've been married 52 years. And so uh, that was, um, you know, it it was, it was an interesting beginning, but um, I think it, um, it, it turned out, it turned out well. These are great stories. You know, Rick, uh, I'm sure the audience will get a feel for what we all know, which is you're such a special, unique person, fun, uh, great radio voice for sure. But I feel that your personality now that I know more about your story, your personality and your um, attitude toward life is part of how Sages has evolved. It definitely has that family flair. It's also super fun. We don't we joke about ourselves and we have lots of fun. The sing off. Um, I'm not clear who actually started the sing off, but I have a feeling that you had a big part 
to do with it with is well, that we, true well it was the lap rappers the group the we put rappers. together is that was the, <laughs> was the beginning for oh, a couple of years singing. then we decided well we should really open this up there were other people who wanted to do little acts then we we sort of made it a talent show and so that's that's how it started but it was basically a core group of about six or seven surgeons who uh for the first few years that that was the sing-off yeah and it's one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on as a guest. You were among the top on our list because this is exactly why you embody everything that status is, but I think it's because you embodied it that status is where it is. So I just want to really thank you for your time and agreeing to come on. Um, and so privileged to have you on. Your stories have been great. And thank you so much for being our guest. Well, I want to thank you. I think you're doing such a a wonderful thing for sages, you know, to to memorialize the history and to have people on who who were there at the beginning. I, I just want to congratulate uh, both of you for what you're doing. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank much. You, Appreciate it. And that wraps up today's episode of Sages Stories. You can view the show notes for additional information mentioned on the show. Also, please visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at Sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Tune in again next time. And remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without Sages.